beware. This is a word that is oftentimes found on warning signs that are posted for our safety. I'm sure we've all seen these warning signs that read, beware. For example, you've probably seen a beware sign that then reads, overhead electric power lines. And oftentimes underneath these signs, you'll see a Tesla charging. Maybe you've been hiking somewhere here in Texas, and if so, then the chances are you've probably seen a sign that reads, beware of snakes. Many homeowners with larger dogs, they tend to warn others about their dogs with signs that read, beware of dog. And then there are the Second Amendment advocates here in Texas who post warning signs that say, never mind the dog, beware of the owner. And listen, those who come across these sorts of warning signs will do well to heed the warning. Whenever you see a beware of something sign, don't ignore it. It's there for a reason. This reminds me of the West Virginia man who was mauled by two German shepherds just before being arrested. It was actually October the 23rd, 2020, when James Will III, he decided to break into a home, you know, after ignoring several warning signs. This included a no trespassing sign attached to the front gate right next to the dog on premise sign. Yeah, he ignored those signs. There were also several beware of dog signs that he walked right past, just not even paying attention to it. Not to mention the fact that he had passed a K-9 unit police cruiser in the driveway. Why? Well, because the homeowner is Deputy Jeremy Farrell, who runs a K-9 unit. Well, needless to say, this would-be burglar quickly became a chew toy, complete with squeaky sounds, as the two German shepherds inside the home decided to pin him down and give him a couple of bites for good measure. He was on his way to jail when he took some time to reflect on his own decision to ignore all of the beware signs that he passed on the way into this house. Now, with this story in mind, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking Am I ignoring the warning signs, kind of like this guy who broke into a police officer's home? Am I ignoring the warning signs, spiritually speaking? Am I ignoring the beware signs that we find in the Bible? If so, I hope this study will help you to become a believer who is taking the biblical warning signs seriously. As we make our way through the text before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that believers should beware. We should beware, first of all, of angry unbelievers. Believers should also beware of evil workers. And thirdly and finally, we'll consider how believers should beware of religious deceivers. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Here we find Paul, he's presenting a word of warning to the Christians at the church there in Philippi. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Philippians, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was in our last study when we learned about the foundations of our Christian fellowship. And it was during that study when we learned about the way in which our connection with Christ Jesus... Well, it creates the connection that we have with every other Christian. Our connection with Christ Jesus establishes a forever family with everyone else who uh, trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after considering this connection that we have here within our own fellowship, we now find Paul warning the original recipients of this epistle about those who wanted to destroy the fellowship that they enjoyed in Christ Jesus. And with this as the focus, I want to turn our attention now to Philippians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, here in our text today, here in the first two verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's encouraging his audience first to rejoice. That word rejoice, which is found there in verse 1, well, it's translated from the same Greek word that Paul used back in chapter 1. There he rejoiced. 
and he spoke about the way that he rejoiced in knowing that the gospel message of Christ Jesus was being preached by the believers there in Philippi. He also used the same Greek word in the second chapter of this epistle. There he encouraged them to continue rejoicing with him as he personally poured out his life on the sacrifice and the service of their faith. And then in the same chapter, he also informed them that he was preparing to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi so that they might have another reason to rejoice at the time of his return. And from this we can see Paul was concerned about the emotional state of the Christians there in Philippi. He was concerned about their emotional state and he wanted them to rejoice. And and all of this, one reason why? Well, because they had become targets of the angry unbelievers who were persecuting the Christians there in Philippi. And so Paul reminded them that every born-again believer, regardless of the situation, had reason to rejoice. And he did this by declaring, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, anytime you hear a preacher say, finally, you know that there's at least 30 more minutes of sermon uh, on the other side of that. Finally, my brethren, he says. And then he writes for another two chapters. Finally, my brother, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now listen, Paul wasn't directing these disciples to rejoice in their hardships. He wasn't saying, yeah, life is rough, rejoice anyway. That's not his point. No, instead he's encouraging them to rejoice, not in their hardships, but notice, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul elaborates on this in the next chapter. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. There he declares, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Again, he says, rejoice. Now listen, I, I have no doubt that there are times when we don't feel like rejoicing. Like when we get to the 45-minute mark of this sermon and we move on to the next 10, 20 minutes, I'm guessing there's, a, there's many who aren't rejoicing. It's hard to rejoice when you're hungry, right? We don't always feel like rejoicing. There are times when we're struggling with sickness. Who wants to rejoice when they're sick? There are times when we're wrestling with depression and we don't feel like rejoicing. There are times when we're worried about our finances. We don't feel like rejoicing. There are times when we're suffering from the pain of persecution as people are rejecting us because of our faith in Jesus Christ and we don't feel like rejoicing. And as we focus in on whatever it is that would keep us from rejoicing, I encourage you to realize that those who don't feel like rejoicing should refocus their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we focus our faith on Jesus Christ, there's reason to rejoice. you're struggling to rejoice, I encourage you, get your eyes off of whatever is bumming you out and fix your focus on Jesus, and then we can rejoice in the Lord. At the same time, Paul also took the time to share his concerns about the safety of the Christians there in Philippi, and if you would notice again there in verse 1, here again Paul declares, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. Here in the second half of this verse, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that he was happy to write this epistle, though he had already told them these things several times already. I'm guessing he might be referring back to the days that he was in Philippi and he was presenting them with things that would help keep them safe. And now he's reminding them of those things. And he says, hey, it's not tedious. Telling you again what I've already told you several times before is not tedious, but for you it's safe. I've had people commend me for teaching the same truths over and over and over again for many, many years. I've been pastoring here since 2005, and I find myself oftentimes saying the same things over and over again. I can assure you it's not tedious. It's a joy to teach the truth of God's word. But for you, it's safe to hear it over and over and over again. Paul wanted to provide his audience with the doctrinal instructions which would help safeguard their faith. 
And not only that, but Paul also wanted to provide them with the instructions that they needed so that they might learn how to safeguard their lives against the angry unbelievers who might want to do them harm after being offended by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the warning that Paul presented here in our text today. And so look with me again here at verse 2. Here he goes on in the name of safety to say this. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's warning the believers there in Philippi, and he does this by encouraging them to become believers who are aware of, of, of these difficulties and, and, and the attacks that could come against the church, and he encourages them to beware of these three specific groups. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word beware, which is found there three times in verse 2, it's translated from a Greek word which was used to grab the attention of another person so that they might... Pay attention. He's saying, beware, pay attention. The original Greek word was used in reference to the mental discernment that comes from careful observation. He's saying, carefully observe these things so that you can pay attention to what's happening. The the modern-day equivalent is presented by the person who declares, look out or watch out because there's something that could harm them. When I go mountain biking with my buddies, you know, one of the things that will oftentimes happen is there's like a, a tree limb that's kind of come down a little bit, and it might be head level. And if I'm in the front, then I'll, I'll yell, hey, heads up. It's the wrong instructions. I should say heads down, but... but I'm just encouraging them to be aware of something that could hurt them. In the context of this passage, Paul was encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. Just to be clear, you know, Paul isn't referring to literal canines. He's, he, he's not referring to, you know, someone's pet. Instead, he's referring to angry unbelievers. Now, how do I get that? How, how, do, I, how, how do I know that he's referring to angry unbelievers as dogs here? Well, to make my case, it'll help you to know that the Greek word rendered dogs was oftentimes used in reference to impudent people who are given over to impure desires. And not only that, but we also find the same Greek word rendered dogs being used of the unrepentant unbelievers who are going to be condemned at the end of the millennial kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation chapter 22. There John uses the same word. And he does this by writing this. He says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. You know, much like Paul, John here is using the word dogs of those who were unbelievers. And he tells us here that that when it comes to the new Jerusalem, the dogs won't be let in. The dogs must remain outside. Now, I realize that he's describing the difference here between the blessed believers who will enter into the new Jerusalem and the unbelievers who will be forced to wait outside until the day of judgment. That's really the context here. And yet I would love to use these verses in order to address the modern-day dog owner who feels the freedom to bring their so-called service dogs into restaurants and grocery stores and hardware stores where, you know, those dogs go on to do their business on the floor of some place you're trying to eat. It's just disgusting. Yet these dog owners are just like, it's my right to bring my dog in. Mm. Listen, I'm not talking about seeing-eye dogs. I... I fully believe that seeing eye dogs provide guidance for those who are blind and it's a, it's a necessary thing. But I'm referring instead to the pet owners who purchase phony service animal vests. You know who they are. And then they put this phony service animal vest on their dog because they just can't seem to do life without their dog next to their side. It's like, come on. I heard about a couple who dressed up their little dog with a service animal vest, took it to church. You know, the service animal vest clearly didn't fit. It didn't belong to that dog. Come on. But they approached the, the, the front door of the church, and the pastor was there to stop them and, and, and just encourage them to memorize Revelation 22, verse 15, which helps us to see that dogs must remain outside. So don't bring your dog to church unless, unless it's a seeing-eye dog. 
seriously though, you know, John's not talking about actual canines here. He's, he's instead talking about the unrepentant unbeliever. So I'll get off my soapbox and, uh, and I'll avoid the topic of no one has a service cat. And it just... The Lord Jesus uses the same Greek word rendered dogs in Matthew chapter 7. It's verse 6 where he declares, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. Now, uh, here in this verse, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that they needed to be careful they needed to be careful as they were going out to spread the gospel message. They, they, they needed to be careful whenever they approached angry unbelievers with the message of our Messiah. And one reason is due to the fact that there are many who will take offense to the gospel of grace. Many will take offense to the message, you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. That triggers many people. And much like handing a pearl to a pig... They, they don't understand the value. A, a pig will never understand the value of a pearl. And, and if they try to chew on it and eat it and they get mad at you, they might turn and attack you, right? And in the same sense, if you try to give the gospel to an angry unbeliever who is offended by the message that they're sinners who need to be saved, they might not understand the value of that message. Like a wild dog or a wild pig, they might turn and attack you. They won't hesitate to hurt those who they feel are hurting them. With that being the case, it's crucial for Christians to beware. When we go out to share our faith, when, when, we, when we share the gospel message with unbelievers, we should beware. Because some people will respond like an angry dog that just got kicked. Their feelings have been hurt and they're going to lash out because they don't know how to process those emotions. In order to further grasp Paul's point, I want to consider the warning that Jesus presented to his disciples. If you would, hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that unbelievers have not only been you know, compared to dogs in the Scripture, but... The Lord Jesus also refers to some unrepentant believers as ravenous wolves. I want to consider how Jesus puts it here in Matthew chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 16, here Jesus declares, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Oh, great. Doesn't that just encourage your heart this morning? We are the sheep of our Savior, and he sent us out into the midst of wolves. And therefore, what does he say? Be wise. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And then he says this, beware of men. And the feminists are like, well, what about the women? Sure, women too. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus helping his disciples to understand that those who trust in him, we're like sheep who are living in the midst of wolves. And knowing that these wicked wolves will do their best to destroy the lives of the Savior's sheep, Jesus took this time to encourage every believer to realize that we need to walk in wisdom. We need to walk in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit so that we might avoid the attacks of these angry unbelievers. And listen, you know me, I love sharing my faith with unbelievers. I love evangelizing those who are lost. But the minute someone starts getting angry about it, the minute someone starts getting contentious about it, I'm just happy enough to just back away. I don't need to get into a fist fight over the gospel of grace. It doesn't make sense. And so if somebody is going to 
you know, sniff at the pearl I'm trying to give them and turn around and try to attack me. I'm just going to, you know, end the conversation as politely as possible and move on. And if you're someone who's prone to keep it, you know, you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they finally attack you, maybe just calm down a little bit and realize that some people aren't ready to hear it all. And if, if, if you know, your attempt to reach them is making them angry, just end the conversation as politely as possible and beware of the dogs. While it's true that believers ought to beware of angry unbelievers, it's also true that believers should also beware of evil workers. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 3. Here we find Paul, he's warning the Christians there in Philippi about those who are engaging in wicked works. And if you would look with me again, we'll back up and begin reading again at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Now, I want to stop right there. I want, to, I want to consider what Paul means when he warns the Christians there in Philippi about evil workers. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word evil, it's translated from a Greek word which was used to describe those who are completely depraved and, and to the point where they're destroying their own lives and the lives of others. The same word was also used of those who are worthless and wicked. In order to further grasp the meaning of this word evil, we must understand that evil was not created by our creator. No, instead, evil is the degradation of his perfect creation. Now, there are those who are quick to insist that the existence of evil is evidence that the God of the Bible must not exist because why would a good God you know, create evil and these sorts of things? The basic argument is typically presented in something like this. If evil exists... And if God exists, then either God doesn't have the power to eliminate evil, or he doesn't know when evil exists, or he doesn't have the desire to eliminate all evil. Well, seeing how the God of the Bible is described as being all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, well, then the existence of evil would then be evidence that the God of the Bible must not exist. Well, this seems like a reasonable argument to many, and yet I would argue that this half-baked uh, you know, uh, argument has convinced many without good reason at all. But there are many who use this to, to, to insist that, that we can't reasonably believe in the God of the Bible. Why? Because evil exists. Well, how do you know evil exists? How can you identify what is evil apart from a good God who defines what is good? You have to have a good God that defines what is good to know what the degradation of that which is good is. But what these unbelievers are failing to realize is that, you know, God actually has a righteous reason for the evil that he allows. Now, I realize that's, that's difficult to grasp. It's difficult for us to understand that God could actually have a righteous reason for evil that he does allow. And yet, I would just point out for a moment here that you know, the person who has a finite mind is probably going to have a hard time understanding an infinite God. And sometimes we just need to go ahead and realize that God knows more than we do. And could you imagine how a good and loving God could use evil workers for his own righteous purposes? I have a hard time getting my mind around that. I'm guessing most of you do too. And yet, that's what we see in the scriptures. We see God constantly using evil people and evil workers and evil things to his own ends. And it's for this reason that Paul here, uh, you know, not only informs his audience in Philippi that there are evil workers, but he says, hey, beware of them. He's encouraging them to beware of evil workers because why? Because there are evil workers out there. Evil workers that God allows to do evil things. And yet we should beware of them. Now, just to be clear, when Paul refers to these people as evil workers, that word workers was translated from a Greek word which was used of the laborers who were hired to work. And, and the same Greek word was also used of perpetrators. The, the word was used of perpetrators who engage in criminal activities. They're evil workers. And in this context, you know, Paul's referring to the evil perpetrators who were engaging in works of wickedness. Now, Christian, listen. 
We've already established that evil isn't something that is created by God, but rather evil is the degradation of his perfect creation. And this occurs as beings with free will choose to do things that are in conflict with God's perfect will. Please understand that any time we do anything that is in conflict with God's perfect will, it is what? It's evil. It's evil, straight up evil. And while we tend to think about the word evil in the context of satanic rituals and demonic possessions and, and all these sorts of things, you know, uh, we heard about the, the guy who set up the, the Baphomet statue there in one of our state's capitals right before Christmas. And, you know, all the conservatives online are just kind of like, oh, this is evil. Yes, setting up a Baphomet statue in a state capital is evil. And so is the politician down the hall who was working on passing pro-choice legislation. That is also evil. Listen, evil is anything that is in conflict with God's perfect will. And and in order to bring this uh, point to to a a finer tip here, uh, listen, the, the first act of evil that ever happened on this planet by a human occurred on the day when a lady ate fruit. When Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. It was evil. Yeah, eating fruit can be evil. It's why I refuse to eat fruit at all. You don't know. I don't know. Is this forbidden fruit? Maybe, probably. Who can say? We tend to think about evil as something that's just like this dark. You can eat fruit and it be evil. It can be that simple. And in light of this, we must understand that those who engage in evil works, it's not always going to look like, you know, know, some person with a, a, a satanic cloak on who's lighting red candles in a dark room with a pentagram. And, he, you know, oh, that's evil, right? It might be some, you know, beautiful blonde gal getting up and singing a song. That could be evil too, right? If the song is in conflict with God's perfect will. I want to consider how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's here where he says this. He says that there are false apostles and deceitful workers who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, his servants, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Christian, listen, uh, the evil workers of this world aren't always dressed up like devil worshipers. According to Paul, there are times when the wolves shroud themselves in sheep's clothing as they pretend to be ministers of righteousness who are serving the Lord, and as they try to present themselves as ministers of righteousness, we know that in their heart of hearts, they're still very bad. And it's important for us to realize that evil workers oftentimes show up, big smiles, beautiful people, And yet they're encouraging Christians to just make minor compromises. They're not coming along saying, worship Satan. No, they'll just encourage you to worship yourself. Because that is evil. They just want you to make minor compromises so that you can still go to church on Sunday, but hey, come out and party with us on Saturday night. With that, I would appeal to America's sweetheart, Taylor Swift, who's been using her popularity and platform to promote her evil beliefs. Yeah, she promotes the pro-choice, pro-abortion position. And, and, you know, Christian parents send their kids to go, listen, some Christian parents go go to the concert themselves. I, I was at a restaurant recently, and I saw this large, fully grown man wearing a Taylor Swift shirt. I'm, I'm just imagining him at the concert, like, 
Is nobody saying stranger danger anymore? Like, this is weird. Yet there he was. Full-grown man with a Taylor Swift concert shirt on. But Christian you know, parents send their kids off to Taylor Swift concert where she actively promotes her pro-abortion position. That is evil. That is evil. Not only that, but she also promotes the gay and lesbian alliance against defamation in her song, You Need to Calm Down. In the lyrics of her song, she talked about how these protesters at the parade, what kind of parade? The Rainbow Jihad Parade. They come out with their protest signs, and she says, you know, you're, you're mad, but you could be glad. And in the lyrics of the song, it's spelled G-L-A-A-D. Well, what's G-L-A-A-D? The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. That's what she's promoting in her song and in her concert. She even stands up and explicitly opposes any legislation that's designed to protect minors from transgender treatments. She'll stop in the middle of her concert and begin to preach against any legislation that, that would stop a doctor from transing a child, a minor. And she's influencing our youth in this way with these evil ideas. She is, a, she is a, 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 an evil worker who is leading people astray. And yet there's Christians in the church who, well, she's not that bad. Yeah, she's evil. And they ran the same program that they, do, they did with the Beatles. They did it with Michael Jackson. They did it with Britney Spears. They, they, they come out all innocent. A, B, C, D, one, two, three. So innocent, so nice. And then next thing you know, Michael Jackson is singing about Jesus turning stones to bread. Jesus never turned stones to bread. That's evil. We need to be careful of these evil workers who send out this music that is in conflict with the, with the, with the word of God. Remember, evil is anything that is in conflict with God's will. That includes all these musicians are, that are writing songs that are in conflict with God's will. We should also consider the Catholics, you know, and, and, and their doctrines. We'll get into more of that later. But I want to talk about one specific Catholic who, pre, who portrays Jesus on the chosen. Here we go. I'm referring to Jonathan Rumi, who is not only a committed Catholic, but he also belongs to the Knights Templar, which shows that he is a very militant Catholic. He's not just like the C&E Catholics who show up Christmas and Easter. He is a militant Catholic. Rumi also starred in the Jesus Revolution movie, so he should be good with Calvary, right? Yeah, he played the role of Lonnie Frisbee, and according to his own testimony, which you can watch online, he went before signing up for this movie. He laid on the grave of Lonnie Frisbee, and he prayed to Lonnie Frisbee so that Lonnie Frisbee might tell him whether to accept the part or not. And according to him, he received an answer from Lonnie Frisbee. This guy who plays Jesus on The Chosen engages in the evil work of necromancy, talking to the dead. And this is evil. Let's not forget about those who are actively opposing Israel's right to live in the land of their own inheritance. This not only includes the terrorists who continue attacking the land that belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to the eternal decree of our God. But this also includes all of the protesters who go and take to the streets and call for the genocide of the Jews. Christian, listen, the Lord is the one who gathered the children of Israel from the four corners of the earth. He's the one who brought them back and reestablished them in the land that he promised to provide to them with a clear outlined border in the, in the Bible. Therefore, those who oppose God's plan to bring Israel back into the land, according to the prophecy that he presented in Ezekiel chapter 37, these people are evil workers who are actively engaging in works of wickedness. And seeing how, you know, this is just a small scratch on the surface of all the evil workers who are out there in the world doing the work of Satan... We do well to heed the warning that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he declares this. He says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. 
evil company. It corrupts good habits. And if you think that you're strong enough to avoid this sort of relational degradation because you're super spiritual and you'll never fall into these traps, well, according to Paul, you're probably deceived. According to Paul, you're probably deceived. That's why he says, do not be deceived. In other words, you're probably going to be deceived about this, but you should know that evil company corrupts good habits. The Christian who thinks that they can engage in these relationships with evil workers without being affected, they're deceiving themselves as they make excuses for the evil company that they love keeping. This sounds like something that you've been struggling with, then I encourage you to follow the instructions that John presented in his third epistle. It's 3 John chapter 1, it's verse 11. There he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. Yeah, don't go to karaoke night and, and imitate the artist that is singing evil things. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God but he who does evil has not seen God. Rather than imitating those who are engaging in the evil works of wickedness, we should instead become those believers who are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And as we follow in the footsteps of Christ Jesus, we'll also do well to beware of the evil workers. And yes, even those who present themselves as just the sweetest, most beautiful people in the world who appear to be like angels of light and yet are really nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's beware of evil workers, and especially those who masquerade as ministers of righteousness. Now, this brings us to our third point, because listen, believers should not only beware of angry unbelievers, and we should not only beware of evil workers, but we should also beware of religious deceivers. With this as the focus, I want to make our way back to Philippians chapter 3. Here we find Paul, he's warning the Christians in Philippi about the religious deceivers who were leading people back into the bondage of the law. And if you would look with me again here in Philippians chapter 3, we'll back up and begin reading at verse 1. Here again, Paul declares, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, Beware of the mutilation. Paul here is warning the Christians there in Philippi about the mutilation. And just to be clear, he's actually encouraging them to beware of a, a group of religious deceivers who were trying to convince the first century Gentile Christians that there was still more for them to do before they could actually believe that they were saved. They needed to keep the law of Moses. This included a strict observa observance of the dietary and the Sabbatarian restrictions that we find in the Mosaic Covenant. And not only that, but this also included the seal of the Abrahamic Covenant, which is the circumcision of the foreskin. And this is what Paul is referring to as the mutilation. This was precisely the point that Paul went on to make in Galatians chapter 5 after the Judaizers arrived there in Galatia. And it's there in verses 11 and 12 where Paul declares, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Paul here is addressing the religious deceivers who were trying to convince uh, the uncircumcised Gentiles there in Galatia, that circumcision was necessary for those who want to have a right relationship with God. And apparently, these people were saying, well, that's what Paul believes too. And so Paul says, hey, if I still preach this circumcision message, why are they still persecuting me? And knowing that these false teachers were leading Gentile Christians astray, Paul here says, I wish that those false teachers would cut themselves off. Just to be clear, the Greek word which was rendered cut themselves off, well, it's used in reference to the mutilation of a person's private parts. Now, just to be clear, Paul was addressing the false teachings of a group that has come to be known as the Judaizers. This was a group of Jews who claimed to be Christian, and yet they were guilty of creating a false gospel as they required Gentiles to first become Jewish proselytes through circumcision so that then, after their circumcision, then they could become Christians. They had a blend of works plus faith equals salvation. 
which is no gospel at all. They also required strict adherence to the Mosaic law as a means for salvation. And it's sad to say that there were many Christians there in the first century who got caught up in this heresy. It's for this reason that Paul challenged the first century Christians, especially the Gentiles, to beware of the mutilation. It's in similar fashion that we would all do well to beware of the Messianic Jewish congregations here in the world today who are little more than modern-day reinventions of the Judaizers. Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not suggesting that the entirety of Messianic Judaism is guilty of this heresy, and yet there are many, many congregations under the banner of Messianic Judaism who have created a false gospel that blends faith plus the law. As a matter of fact, there are many in this movement who place a greater emphasis on the Torah than on the epistles of Paul. If you were to go into any number of Messianic congregations, they would emphasize the Torah and the law over the teachings of Paul, the doctrinal instructions that we've been given for the church age. Rather than celebrating on Sunday, which is the day of our Savior's resurrection, they keep their congregations back under the bondage of the old covenant according to the law of the Sabbath. I know, I know by, my, my, uh, by my own experience, it was back in 1996 when I started attending a Messianic congregation in North Austin. They were offering a crash course in Hebrew, and I thought, hey, free Hebrew class, I'm going to go. Well, it didn't take long before the rabbi invited me to stick around for their Sabbath services, and I thought, hey, that's cool. So I did. I also started attending their New Moon festivals and, and their their celebrations and these sorts of things. The next thing I knew, the rabbi was pulling me off and encouraging me to question the epistles of Paul. And why, why was he questioning the epistles of Paul? Well, because Paul speaks out against the Old Covenant. Not that Paul was opposed to the Old Covenant, but he simply called it a tutor to bring us to Christ. And once we're in Christ, we no longer need the tutor. Well, I was a fairly new believer at that point in time, and so I didn't fully understand that this rabbi was leading me back under the bondage of the Old Covenant. And so, you know, he, he was trying to convince me that we're saved by faith plus the works of the law. And, and you know, thankfully, as I began to dig into the Word and try to understand the, the situation here, Paul made it perfectly clear. It's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, where he says, When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Christian, listen, our Savior made the old covenant obsolete on the day when he created the new covenant with his blood there on the cross. And while it's true that every unbeliever is still under the condemnation of the old covenants, it's also true that those who trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ are now under the new covenant, which was written in his blood, and therefore the old covenant is now obsolete. We don't need the tutor anymore. That being the case, we should be aware of the religious deceivers who are adding works to the gospel of grace. And one reason why is because they're leading people back into the bondage of the law. This most certainly includes the Pope and the priests of the Catholic Church. You might not know this, but the leaders of the Catholic Church are religious deceivers who are presenting their people with a plan of salvation that requires the works of the sacraments as a means for salvation. Now, I get it. They say that they're saved by grace. But listen, when you get them to define what grace is, grace is the sacraments. God has poured out his grace by means of the sacraments, which are the works that you must do now in order to achieve salvation. The sacraments that I'm talking about, water baptism, confirmation, communion, and confession. According to the Catholic Church, these sacraments are the necessary means by which the grace of God then then is imparted. And according to their theology, Catholics must center their lives upon these sacraments, which then become the means of their salvation. Or in other words, they're saved by works. Without debate, we should be aware of this false gospel and those who preach the false gospel of the Catholic Church because 
They are religious deceivers. Not only that, but we should also be aware of the religious deceivers who are preaching the doctrines of the Mormon church. In case you didn't know, the leaders of the Mormon church present another gospel, which is no gospel at all. For example, it's in 2 Nephi chapter 25. There we learn that, and I quote, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Now, I'm sure you understand Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of works is the gift of God, right? The Mormons believe that they're saved by grace when? After they've done all their works. Well, how many works? Well, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 58, the Mormons are directed to, and I quote, sin no more. Sinless perfection. And, and in the same passage, they, they're, they're told that the former sins, that if they sin after their repentance, then their former sins return upon them. So if you repent one day and you think you're saved and you sin the next day, then all of your former sins return upon you. The plan of salvation, according to Mormonism, is based on keeping all of the law all of the time. Then, after all you can do, that's when you get the grace of God. Oh, gee, thanks. We need to be aware of the religious deceivers who are preaching the doctrines of Mormonism. Sadly, this is just a scratch on the surface of all the religious deceivers who are leading people astray. I have no more time left to go into all the rest of them, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Christ, the United Pentecostal Church, the Black Hebrew Israelites, and so on and so forth. There is no shortage of religious deceivers who are leading people to believe that they must engage in some level of works, whether it be baptism or, or all of the law or whatever it is. The minute they add any work to faith, They've created a false gospel. And it's sad that there are so many in the church today who are easily led astray by these doctrines of demons. And one reason why is because they don't really heed the signs, the warning signs that we find posted all throughout the Bible. They walk past the Bible, beware signs, like the guy that broke into the canine officer's house. Another reason for why so many Christians are, are, are failing for, and falling for these false teachings is because they go to a church where the pastor fails to guard the flock which has been committed into his care. And to make my case, I want to consider the instructions that Paul presented to a group of pastors from Ephesus. It's actually in Acts chapter 20. There he's talking to this group of pastors and he says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. As we consider this section of scripture, we must not fail to recognize that the pastor, or, or what you might call the shepherd, has been called to protect the flock that has been committed to his care. As the pastor, I've been called to oversee this congregation. As a shepherd, I am called to protect the sheep of this flock. And you might be thinking, well, I don't want to be a sheep. I'm not a sheep, I'm, I'm a lion. Okay. So you're telling me you're not a sheep of our Savior Jesus? Is that, is that your point? Be careful when, when you start insisting that you're not a sheep. We're all sheeps. Every Christian has become a sheep of our shepherd Jesus Christ. And he's, he's raised up pastors, overseers. And yes, I am a sheep, but you know, I'm, I, you know as for this church, I'm like the Lambo here, right? So... I'm called to, you know, protect the flock from the wolves. And I take this responsibility very seriously. It's my responsibility to expose the wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and when I say, hey, this is a wolf, beware. And then I hear out in the hallway, I don't, I don't really believe in what Pastor Bunja says. I'm going to go ahead and listen to this music. All right. If you walk past the beware signs, don't be surprised when you get bit. 
And if you walk past the beware signs with your family, don't be surprised when your kids get bit. And it's sad that many Christians will avoid a church like this one because they'd rather go to a church where the pastor is not being a pastor. Where every Sunday is a party and there's no real serious consideration of the beware signs. Many in the church today who prefer their autonomy over the protection of their pastor and rather than becoming a believer who recognizes and respects the protective responsibilities of their pastor, uh, they'd much rather follow in the footsteps of James Will III as they ignore the warnings that instruct us to beware of the dogs. This sounds like the path that you've been taking that I encourage you to realize that the believers who fail to beware, they eventually get bit by the evil things that they embraced along the way. Without being the case, I just encourage you to heed the advice that Paul presented in Colossians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Redeeming the time, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In light of this, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I walking in wisdom when it comes to my interaction with the dogs outside? Am I walking in wisdom? Or am I running with the pack of wolves who are headed in the wrong direction? Are we still being entertained by evil artists whose lyrics are in conflict with the word of God, all the while thinking that it won't affect me? Or are we standing with Christ as we warn the world about the dogs and the evil workers and the religious deceivers who are leading people astray? With these questions in mind, I encourage you. We need to take the warning signs seriously. And we need to be aware of everything that could bring us back into bondage. With this as the goal, we do well to remember that believers have been called to beware of angry unbelievers by becoming Christians who are wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Believers have been called to beware of evil workers by making sure that we're walking in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And finally, believers should beware of religious deceivers by making sure that we're heeding the warnings of those who have been called to oversee the flock. And as we do these things... We will become those believers who are avoiding the bondage that is brought on by unbelievers. In this way, according to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus, we will become those believers who beware. Let's pray.